take a while, and turn to Acts chapter 22. <clears throat> Acts 22. <clears throat> Acts 22, and let's just read from verse 22 this evening. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 21. It says, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word, and they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes, they threw dust into the air. The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. And the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was free born. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid, after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him on the morrow, on the morrow because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews. He loosed him from his bonds, uh, bands, <clears throat> and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. And let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to study the, the truths of your word. And Lord, this evening as we conclude this section in the, the book of Acts, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts, that you would teach us and instruct us through the passage before us. Lord, may you take it and apply it to our hearts through the Holy Spirit this evening. May, Lord, it be your words and your thoughts. May, Lord, you empower me now to, to speak only that which you'd have me to speak. Lord, I pray that you would receive all the glory, the honor and praise now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, last Sunday, of course, we looked at Paul's defense before the crowd. Okay, remember he was in the temple and he'd been set upon by a mob. They dragged him out into the court of the Gentiles. They'd beaten him and then Paul had been rescued by the Romans. And as they were taking him up the steps to the, the fortress Antonia, Paul had been given license to turn and address the crowd. And he'd been able to give his defense, a defense of, uh, to the charges against him, but also a defense of his faith in Christ. And so Paul proceeded to give them his testimony. He told them of his credentials as a Jew, you know, identifying with them as a crowd, identifying with the Jewish people, saying you know, that he was just like them. He had the same zeal, the same zeal for God, the same zeal for the law that they had even now as they were persecuting him. It was that zeal that led Paul to relentlessly persecute the church. But then Paul went on to tell how all that changed when he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He met his risen Savior. 
In that moment, he realized that the one he had been persecuting was indeed his Messiah. You know, Paul realized that he had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And so Paul immediately, uh, realizing his, his sin, he turned to the Lord, he acknowledges Christ as Lord, and he humbly asks what the Lord now wants him to do. And we saw that Paul went to Damascus, and there he received his commission from Ananias. And the commission was that he was to preach the gospel unto all men. He was to take that gospel message and preach it, spread it abroad. When he came back to Jerusalem, that commission was confirmed to him in the temple. He was praying and the Lord gave him a vision. And in that vision, he was given even more instruction. The Lord told him to leave Jerusalem and to go unto the Gentiles. And up until that point, the crowd had remained silent. The crowd had listened to Paul. They'd given him audience. But as soon as Paul mentioned that God had told him, God had actually told him in a vision to go unto the Gentiles, the crowd erupted into violence once again. Just read there verse 21. It says, And he said unto me, so this is Paul uh, telling what the Lord said, And he said unto, unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word. They gave him audience until this word, until he said the Gentiles. So he mentioned the Gentiles. They were happy to listen. But now they're against Paul again. They've erupted into frenzy, a violent frenzy. And this evening we want to continue on and conclude chapter 22 here by considering the response of the crowd and then secondly, the response of the Roman commander. And so first of all, this evening we see the response of the crowd. Just read there again, verse 22. It says, And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes, they threw dust into the air. Now I'm sure we all know that there was great antagonism between the Jews and the Gentiles. They didn't exactly like each other. Now, the Jews especially didn't like the Gentiles. The Jews viewed themselves as being God's special people, and they were his chosen people. But they viewed themselves as being better than everybody else, better than the Gentiles. And, and so they wouldn't entertain the thought that God would actually send someone to minister unto the Gentile dogs. That's what makes them so upset here. They couldn't entertain the thought that God would actually tell someone to go and minister directly to what they considered to be Gentile dogs. You know, they couldn't imagine that their God actually cared about the welfare of a body of people who were considered morally deficient and worthy only of destruction. I mean, that's how the, the Jews viewed the Gentiles. And so for Paul then to stand up and declare that God had actually spoke to him directly in a vision... And God had told him to take that divine message unto the Gentiles. This was something more than, uh, this was blasphemy, if you like, in the eyes of these patriotic Jews. This offended them greatly. You see, the implications of this statement were too much for them to bear. Now, one commentator said this, he said, in effect, Paul was saying that Gentiles can be approached directly with God's message of salvation without first being related to the nation 
and its institutions. This was tantamount to placing the Jews and Gentiles on equal footing before God. And for Judaism, this was the height of apostasy indeed. That's really what his statement was to the, Gen- to the Jews. It was saying the Gentiles are on the same level footing as you guys and God's told me to go and tell them. You see, the Jews weren't opposed to Gentiles converting to Judaism, were they? They weren't opposed to proselyte Jews. But they insisted for that to happen, they had to submit themselves to the yoke of the law. That was the condition, wasn't it? And that, of course, began, if they were a male, with them being circumcised to become a proselyte Jew, become part of Judaism. You know, this, of course, was the same attitude that was carried over into the early church, wasn't it? By the Jewish Christians. This was the same attitude they had. Uh, This morning, Darren read from Galatians chapter 6. Let's just turn there. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12 there. It says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, unless they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. You know, that attitude was carried over the church, wasn't it? They had this attitude, the Jewish Christians, they wanted the Gentiles to get circumcised so they could be saved, so they could be righteous. And essentially, that's the same attitude of the unsaved Jews. Okay, it was the same attitude. If you want to be a, a, a proselyte Jew, you need to get circumcised, you need to keep the law. It's the same attitude. And this is why they become so enraged now against Paul and his statement of going directly to the Gentiles with the message from the Lord. In verse 22, we're told that they begin by lifting up their voices and crying out for Paul to be removed and put to death. It says there, uh, and they gave him audience unto this word and then lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live they basically now start shouting out crying out away with him sound familiar doesn't it away with him john 19 verse 15 they they cried out at christ they said away with him away with him crucify him it's the same thing this the crowd responds in the same hostile way towards paul here and they say away with this fellow this fellow doesn't have any right to live You see, the suggestion that Jews and Gentiles could appear before God on on equal footing was so offensive to this Jewish crowd that they believe now that Paul had forfeited his right to live. It says at the end of the verse there, it says, for it is not fit that that he should live. It's not fit that he continues to live. This guy's forfeited his right to live. You see, to them, his words were the worst kind of blasphemy. And they demanded immediate execution without even a trial. That's what they wanted here. They just want him put to death. Don't worry about a trial. Just kill him. Just get rid of him. You know, one commentator said this. He said, was, this is the attitude of the, of the, the Jews here. Was not such an assertion of itself rank blasphemy? Could King Messiah send one to these unconverted heathen to tell them that the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, was equally their Messiah and Redeemer. One could say, uh, sorry, one who could say such things was surely unworthy to live. That's their attitude here. They're saying he's our Messiah. He's not the Gentiles' Messiah. He's our Messiah, 
And that's why they're so upset. That's why they're so angry. They're yelling out. They're saying he's forfeited. He's, he's right to live. It's blasphemy. Just put him to death. But not only that, <clears throat> not only do they lift up their voices here, crying out for his death, but they also show their anger here by casting off their clothes and throwing dust. Verse 23. And as they cried out, they and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. Now, the scene before us here is a, is a mob in a fit of rage, aren't they? They're almost throwing a tantrum here, if you like. They're casting off their clothes, and this seems to be a, a gesture of horror, absolute horror, at what they've just heard come out of the mouth of Paul. It may also indicate that, they've been, that they're rending their garments, they're tearing their garments. You see, the rending or tearing of garments was something that was common amongst the Jewish and amongst those nations. It was something that we see time and time again in the Word of God was a sign of grief, a sign of mourning. Just turn to Genesis 37, just for one example. Genesis 37, this of course is when Jacob's sons come and tell him that uh, Joseph is dead. Genesis 37 and verse <clears throat> 33. Oh, we'll start back in verse 32. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, He said, We found, now know whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast have devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned his son many days. And so this rending of clothes was a sign of extreme grief, extreme mourning. And that's the idea here. They're showing great mourning, great grief of what they're hearing from Paul. But it was also a sign of extreme revulsion at, the, at blasphemy against the Lord. If you go to Matthew 26... <clears throat> Matthew 26 and verse 65. Matthew 26 verse 65 says, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He have spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold now, ye have heard his blasphemy. This, of course, is Christ being on trial, and he rents his clothes here, the high priest, at the perceived blasphemy that he's heard from the Lord. And this is how the crowd now responds to Paul. They're showing their horror, their absolute horror, their absolute disgust at what they've heard come out of the mouth of Paul. They believe it's blasphemy. And it says they also throw dust into the air. And this portrays a similar idea of horror at what they've heard. And it may be that, you know, they've reached around looking for a stone to throw at Paul and all they found is dust and so they're throwing dust in the direction of Paul. That seems to be the idea here. They're venting their rage at Paul in any way they possibly can. There's no rocks, there's no stones, so they're grabbing dust and they're throwing it. They're like little children, if you like, throwing a tantrum here. They're trying to show their rage against the Apostle Paul. You know, as I was considering this passage this week and thinking about what's the application here, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that while ever Paul spoke about his calling in general terms, you know, talked about the fact that he was called and sent to go unto all men, they kept silent, didn't they? They continued to listen because 
it wasn't offensive to them. They didn't really like it. They weren't really happy with what Paul was saying, but it wasn't yet offensive. They were happy to let it slide. They were happy to keep silence. You know, as soon as he mentioned the Gentiles, as soon as he mentioned something that was against the thinking of the day, they immediately erupt into this violent rage because they don't like his message. They don't like what he's saying. And you know, the same thing happens today, doesn't it? The same thing happens even today when the word of God is preached. You know, people are quite happy to listen to God's word as long as it's about a subject that they don't find offensive. They're quite happy to listen while ever it's about something that doesn't confront their sin or doesn't go against the, the thinking of the day, the humanistic thinking of our day. You know, the reality is that we are called to preach the whole counsel of God, aren't we? Not just selective parts. We're called to preach the whole counsel of God. And the, and the fact of the matter is when we do that, we are naturally going to cause offense. Because there's plenty of things in the Word of God that go against the thinking of today, don't they? They go against everything that the world is saying. You only have to look at you know, the laws they're trying to bring in today to know that we're going against the grain. God's Word is going in the opposite direction. And so as soon as we speak about those truths from God's Word, naturally, people are going to get upset. People are going to be offended. People are not going to like the message. People are going to get upset at God's holy word they're going to become enraged just like this crowd became enraged at paul if we are faithful to the truth you know we must be prepared for people to react that way you know first john chapter 3 and verse 13 says marvel not my brethren if the world hate you we shouldn't be surprised should we we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us it should be the other way around we should be surprised if the world loves us that should give us a warning sign shouldn't it something's wrong we shouldn't be surprised that the world rejects us because of the truth of God's holy word, especially in this day and age. Just go quickly to 2 Timothy. I know we know this passage, but 2 Timothy 4. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1. Verse 1 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. And that's the reality of our times, isn't it? Men have turned their ears away. Men don't want to endure sound doctrine. They want something that's nice and fluffy. They don't like the teaching of god's holy word and so we can expect just like paul did the crowd to react in a diverse way the crowds react by rejecting the truth of god's holy word we see secondly now the response of the commander the response of the commander look there in verse 24 it says the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bathe that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore they cried so against him you know, all the time that Paul is speaking under the crowd, the, the chief captain here has stood silently by. He's standing there just listening as Paul's speaking. And most likely he has no idea what Paul's saying. Unless he has a good grasp on, on Hebrew, he most likely has no idea what Paul has been saying. He just sees a crowd that's fallen silent and they're listening as Paul 
is speaking because he's speaking in the Hebrew tongue. You know, even if he could understand some of the language, he must have been confused when all of a sudden at that one phrase, they erupt into violence. They erupt into shouting and screaming and throwing dust into the air. He must have been confused as to what's going on. What is it that Paul said that upsets them so much? You know, you've got to remember he's a Gentile, he's a Roman captain, he has no idea about the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion. He probably has no idea what's taken place here. He has no idea why they're doing this. I mean, he says at the, end of, at the end of verse 24, it says that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. He has no idea why they've cried against Paul like this. You know, the chief captain did sense the danger of the situation, didn't he? He knew what was, what was taking place. He knew it was quickly degenerating. And so he acts quickly to bring Paul into the castle. As we read there in verse 24, it says the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. So he acts quickly. He orders Paul to be quickly rushed the rest of the way into the castle, as we saw uh, last week or the week before. It's, it's the fortress Antonia right there on the, the corner of the temple. In, so he's rushed him into, the, into this, this fortress now with the intent of questioning Paul and getting to the bottom of it all finally. And you know, this was his original intention, wasn't it? The whole reason he had taken Paul up those stairs towards the, the fortress was that he was going to question Paul. He was going to get to the bottom of this. If you go back to chapter 21 and verse 34, <clears throat> oh, I was saying verse 33, sorry. Chapter 21, verse 33, it says, Then the chief captain came near and some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. And when he, when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And so this was his original intention. He was taking Paul into the castle to question him, to get to the bottom of this. You know, he probably let Paul speak in the hope that Paul might calm down the crowd. And, you know, for a while it seemed like it was working, didn't it? It seemed like they're all listening, they're all quiet. And perhaps Paul is going to be able to get them to, to let things go and uh, the, the mob to dissemble. But now the very opposite thing happens, doesn't it? The very opposite happens as they erupt now into even more of a frenzy. And so he commands him brought inside and to be examined. It says there in verse 24, and bade that he should be examined by scourging. The word examined there means to investigate or it's our word interrogate. Paul is about to be interrogated through scourging. That's what they're going to do here. They're going to torture Paul to get the answers. You know, scourging was the, the standard Roman method for getting the truth out of a slave or out of a common person. They would scourge them until they confessed or until they told them what they'd done wrong, got the truth. The commentator Paul, he, he states this. He says this was a particularly cruel manner of scourging that consisted of beating across the raw flesh with leather thongs in which were inserted rough pieces of bone or metal. The thongs were set in a stout wooden handle. And this was a much more severe manner of beating than that of the rods which Paul and Silas underwent at Philippi. It was not uncommon for the victim to die as a result. You know, Paul has been through quite a few beatings. At Philippi, as I mentioned there, he was beat with, beaten with rods. 
But this scourging was far more severe. This was something terrible. It's the scourging that Christ went through, isn't it? It's that scourging that tears the back of the victim apart. And as it says, they're not uncommon for someone to die as a result. This is what Paul is now facing. And it's at this point that Paul now speaks up. And Paul finally asserts his his rights as a Roman citizen. Look in verse 25, it says, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, they've taken Paul inside. They begin to bind him with these thongs or leather straps. And they're tying him to the pole in front to begin to scourge him. And you get the sense that Paul realizes what's about to happen. He knows what he's about to receive. And so Paul asks the question. He says, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? You know, Paul, in essence, he plays his trump card, doesn't he? He plays his trump card. He's held off speaking about his Roman citizenship until this very point. And now he plays that trump card. He mentions that he's a Roman citizen. You see, his citizenship entitled him to certain rights and privileges. Wherever he went within the Roman Empire, he had special rights that others didn't have. As a Roman citizen, he was subject to Roman law, but not the laws of the local cities. And as such, it meant that when he was accused of a crime... He could agree to be tried by that local law, but he still had the right to appeal to a Roman tribunal. So even if he was found guilty, he could still go to the Roman tribunal and be tried by them. In the case of capital punishment, someone who had Roman citizenship had the right to appeal unto Caesar, unto the emperor, and they had the right to be treated humanely. And this is what Paul is now saying. He's saying, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. And Paul points out here that two violations of his rights are about to be made. More have already happened, but about two more are about to happen. He says there in verse 25, he says, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man, that is a Roman, and uncondemned? You see, Roman citizens were exempt from scourging. That was one of their rights. They were not allowed to be scourged. And they couldn't be punished without a trial. And both of those things were about to happen to Paul. You know, one of Rome's greatest orators, a man by the name of Cicero, he described the attitude towards citizenship and punishment. He said this, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him, an abomination. To slay him is, an, is almost an act of murder. That was, that was the attitude towards a Roman citizen. To bind him is a crime. To flog him, an abomination. To slay him is an act of murder. You know, the soldiers had already committed a crime by binding Paul. They'd bound him. That was already a crime against a Roman citizen. They were about to commit a second by beating him, and they may even commit the third by killing him in the process of doing that. And all of this without a trial. This makes us understand here why they react with such fear. They react with a great deal of fear here when they learn this news. You see, immediately they stop what they're doing and they go and tell the chief captain. Look in verse 26. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. The centurion hears this and immediately he he says, Stop what you're doing. He stops the interrogation. They don't go any further. And he runs and he tells the chief captain. 
And you notice his words there. He says, take heed what thou doest. For this man is a Roman. He says, be very careful now how we proceed. Very careful what we do. Because, you see, they themselves could now be charged with a crime if they weren't careful. They could face greater punishment than Paul if they weren't careful how they proceeded. The chief captain now immediately goes to verify this himself. In verse 27 we read, Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. He comes to Paul and he says, Paul, tell me, are you, are you a Roman citizen? Tell me the truth. You know, Paul's reply here is very simple, isn't it? He just says, yea, yes. You know, it makes us wonder, how could Paul prove his citizenship? You know, what was to stop anyone who was bound from saying, I'm a Roman citizen? What was to stop them from making this claim to avoid punishments? Well, it appears that Roman citizenship, a claim, sorry, of Roman citizenship was accepted on face value because of the harsh punishment that was inflicted upon you if you were found to be lying. So they would accept it at face value because if you were proven to be a liar, proven to be false, you would face far worse consequences down the road. One commentator said this, those who claimed Roman citizenship and had their claims later disproved faced considerably worse punishments. And so they could prove Paul's claim. You know, they obviously had records and they could go and check it. It might take some time, but they could check his claim of citizenship. And so for now, it's accepted as being the truth. And in verse 28, we now read that the captain, he, begin, he tells Paul about his own citizenship. He says in verse 28, And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. You know, this chief captain says, Paul, I obtained my citizenship by paying a great sum, a great deal of money. You know, the reality is that Roman citizenship couldn't actually be bought. You couldn't pay for it. You couldn't buy it. And so what the captain is saying here is he's saying, I paid a really big bribe to get my citizenship. I paid a huge bribe to obtain this. And apparently historical records tell us that during the time of Emperor Claudius, the, the obtaining of a Roman citizenship by paying a bribe was widespread practice. And it seems that it's during this emperor's reign that he got his citizenship. And we conclude that because of chapter 23 and in verse 26, we see that he's added Claudius to his name. Okay, uh, Chapter 23 and verse 26 this is talking about the chief captain. He says, Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent Felix, sendeth greeting. His given name is Lysias, and he's taken upon himself the name Claudius. And the reason he did that is it's common practice to take the name of the benefactor who gave you citizenship. And so we can assume that during the time of Emperor Claudius, this man paid his bribe and got his citizenship. And the reason he says this to Paul is because he's assuming that Paul paid for his as well. He's assuming that Paul has some, bribed someone to obtain this. And basically he's saying, I paid a great deal of money for mine. Man, the price mustn't be very high today. Look at you. That's really what he's saying here. Paul, you've got to picture what Paul looks like. He's going to be destitute. He's been beaten. He doesn't look like much. He doesn't look like he's got much to his name. And he's saying, I paid all this money. Man, it must be going cheap now for you to have bought your citizenship. 
And that's when Paul responds by saying that he's born free. He says, and Paul said, but I was free born. You see, Paul inherited his citizenship from his father. He may have got it from his grandfather as well. And we're not told how Paul's father earned this citizenship, but it was usually given as a reward for services that were rendered to a Roman general or to an official. And so the, somehow, somewhere along the line, his family were rewarded for something they did for the Romans, whatever it might be. They were rewarded with citizenship, this privilege, this right. And how they came to become citizens doesn't really matter. The point is that Paul's citizenship here counted for far more than the captains. That's what this verse tells us. The captain bribed someone to get his. Paul was born free. Paul was born with this citizenship. He commanded greater respect. And so if you like, the Roman captain now has to be even more careful what he does. Even more careful how he proceeds because Paul's citizenship carried with it greater respect than his own. And being persuaded now of Paul's status, the soldiers leave Paul, they they leave him alone. They don't do anything more to him. And the captain is left in a state of fear. Look in verse 29. It says, Then straightway they departed from him, uh, which should have examined him. And the chief captain was also, sorry, also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The chief captain is left in a state of fear. He's afraid of what the consequences are going to be. What's, what's the ramifications? What's he going to suffer? Because he had bound Paul. And so now he seeks about uh, trying to get a just resolution to the matter. He tries to now do things properly and get things done right. And to finally comprehend the real reason behind the uproar. And so what he does is he arranges for Paul to be brought before the Sanhedrin. Look in verse 30. It says, On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews... He loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. He arranges for Paul now to stand before the Sanhedrin because he wants to get to the bottom of it and he wants to do it now lawfully, the right way. You know, the Sanhedrin, as I'm sure we know, was the supreme council of the Jews. And he wanted to hear directly from them what the accusation was against Paul. You know, what we see here is that Paul is given yet another opportunity to stand before his brethren. This time it's before the Sanhedrin, the leaders, and he's given a chance to defend his faith. You know, all of this is God's will, isn't it? Without doubt, God is still leading. God is still protecting his servant, Paul. It's all part of God's plan. God is taking care of him. As I was thinking about this week, you know, even his citizenship was the providence of God in his life, wasn't it? You know, Paul might have wondered growing up, what's the point of this citizenship? Why have I got it? Well, it was for this very occasion, wasn't it? It was the providence of God that Paul was a citizen for this very occasion to spare him from the scourging and to see him brought before the Sanhedrin. And of course, as we know, Paul's citizenship ended up getting him a free passage to Rome. He got all the way to Rome because of this citizenship that he was born with. And so God made sure that he had it for this very purpose. It was all part of God's plan. 
You know, we must never underestimate God's providential care in our lives. Let's never underestimate God's leading, God's care. You know, Paul's background, his upbringing was all used by God to accomplish his will. There was a purpose for it all. There was a reason for it all. You look at his education, God used that, didn't he, to his glory. All of it was given by God for this purpose, to accomplish his will. You know, the same is true for each of us. You know, our family, family we're born into, our upbringing, our background, our education, the experiences we go through in life, all these things, God is in control. It's all part of God's providential care. It's for a purpose. You see, God is using those things to prepare us and to equip us for his will, his will for our lives. You know, we simply, like Paul, need to be surrendered, don't we? Surrendered and willing to, by faith, boldly stand up for the truth and do God's will. God will take care of the rest. God will, like he did with Paul, he will protect us, he will lead us. And he will accomplish his will through us as we boldly stand up, speak the truth, and do his will for our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the boldness of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we thank you for your providential care in his life. Lord, you knew these things were going to happen to him. And Lord, you protected him, you cared for him, you led him every step of the way. Lord, to eventually bring him into Rome itself to accomplish your will. And Lord, we know that you have your hand upon each of us. You are leading us day by day. Lord, help us to surrender to you. Help us to be willing to stand up for you and boldly speak the truth. No matter the consequences, knowing that you're in control. May you bless now as we close, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.